I'm Scott Dworkin, and you're listening to The Dworkin Report. My guest today is Rick Wilson, editor-at-large for The Daily Beast, best-selling author, CNN and MSNBC pundit, and now becoming best known as one of America's preeminent admin. Some people call what he does, quote-unquote, presidential harassment, and others call it pure, solid gold. But we wanted to speak with Rick specifically about the Lincoln Project, the group of never-Trump Republicans and GOP alumni that he runs with George Conway, Steve Schmidt, and several others. His group's style of hard-hitting, emotionally charged ads has the president personally taking aim at him on Twitter. Particularly, we wanted to ask him about the quote-unquote flag of treason spot, which highlights Trump and the Republican Party's allegiance to a dead nation that tried to break away from America to preserve slavery and failed. In fact, the Republican Party started as an abolitionist party when it elected President Abraham Lincoln to unite our nation before the GOP grew old and became the party of Donald Trump's hideously open racism. How appropriate then that I got to speak with Rick about the Lincoln Project during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests over the death of George Floyd and the deaths of so many unarmed African-Americans at the hands of police. He definitely captured the eeriness of the moment when America's government turned on its citizens and against the Constitution. Take a listen. I'm here with author, columnist, and ad man, the Rick Wilson, who, quote-unquote, some people say is weak and totally conflicted as well as crazed, but, quote-unquote, some people are really just Donald Trump on Twitter. So he's actually (laughs) really smart, strong, and serene. Rick, thanks for joining me on the pod today. How are you? I am doing great, man. How are you? Given the situation, I'm doing great as well. I'm safe, I'm healthy, I'm happy. You mean mean incipient martial law and active duty military troops being called into the streets against American citizens? I did, get, I did get out of the city because of that, yes. You know, my producer is based out of uh, Florida, and sure. you know, there's a lot of questions we have about the Lincoln Project, your books, but I have to know Fire first, away. what's it like being a Florida man? You know, I have been a Florida man now for 56 of my, my years, which is to say all of them. I am a fifth-generation Floridian, which is kind of like a unicorn, because nobody's from Florida anymore. But it, I live in the Panhandle, which was a sort of weird lifestyle choice made years ago. But it's kept me very sane in comparison to a lot of my friends who live in Washington. Yeah, I understand. I worked in Florida in 2006. I was running the fundraising for Christine Jennings, who was running against Vern Buchanan oh, yeah. for Catherine Harris's seat. Yeah. And I, if you want to go in the Wayback Machine... I am partly responsible for Catherine Harris, and I regret that to my dying day. Uh, understood. We did Catherine Harris's Secretary of State race in 1998, and her state senate stuff before that. And so we ended up creating the Catherine Harris monster. It was very exciting at the time. And it's funny when my business partner and I at the time uh, went our separate ways, I was like, you can have Catherine in the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a tough race. And then she ran again in 2008, our candidate, did, Christine right. Jennings. But then we had won back the House. And Vern Buchanan was entrenched at that point, and, and he's been yeah, in office that, ever since. That seat, redistricting makes that seat very difficult to blow out because Tampa has such a large minority community around it. They have to spread some of that around in those six counties surrounding Hillsborough. And so Sarasota ends up looking a lot paler and a lot more Republican than it might have otherwise. Right. 
So now you're working at the Lincoln Project. How did the Lincoln Project get started? Well, the Lincoln Project started when a number of us who were former senior Republican consultants, and all of us are, you know, we've been around the block a few times. I think we have about 100 years of experience between us, or 120 years maybe. And we've all been in the site for a long time on the older traditional sort of George H.W. Bush 41 style conservatism. Consider us pre-Tea Party Republicans. We were very successful at our work, and all of us at various moments in the last four years have broken with the party over Trump. And we decided that, you know, we could all sit on Twitter and we could write books and go on TV and say bad things about Donald Trump, or we could do something that would try to help remove him from office because we all view him as a danger to this country of the highest order. Find out more about Meet the Candidates 2020, my new book series of voter guides authored by Dworkin Report producer Grant Stern. It's the only place you can read my opinion and a factual portrait of each major Democratic candidate in one place. Buy the book now at the link inside this episode's notes at grantstern.com or your local Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. Can you explain to our listeners exactly why you wanted to respond to Trump and you were like, I can't do this anymore? At what point were you anti-Trump? Yeah. I was making fun of Trump before he came down the elevator. (laughs) But when he came down the elevator, I felt this moment of sickness inside of me. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, fuck. Rupert is going to love this. He's going (laughs) to turn Fox into the Trump show. And we're all going to regret it. Little did I know how, A, right I would be and how much we would all regret it. But here we are. At this point, anyone who has an R after their name and says they're still a supporter of Trump is one of two things. They are an opportunist or they are morally complicit. And that Venn diagram occasionally does overlap also. They have completely destroyed the predicates of a party that was supposedly based on individual liberty and the Constitution and limited government and a Burkean approach to freedom. And now they've replaced it with a personality cult run by a madman. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised at what happened the other day with the protesters and the book being held up in front of the church? No. In fact, I'm not surprised because authoritarians, once they're given new toys, always use them. Once the Russians gave Muammar Gaddafi fighter jets back in the 60s, he started using them against his own people. Once you equip their police forces with riot gear, they start using them against their own people. Trump is an authoritarian. He's a statist. And so the minute Bill Barr said, by the way, I've got guys that can go kick those hippies out of the park, off he went. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. Do you think that talking to Putin earlier in the day had anything to do with what happened later? Absolutely. Absolutely. He called the home office in Moscow. Of course it did. (laughs) Of course it did. Of course, Putin is one of our biggest fans. You know, me in 2016, that's where I got my start on joy. And Mm -hmm. obviously, Mm -hmm. Putin loves you as well. So we're welcome in Russia anytime we want to be there. But it's been amazing to see the growth that y'all have had. There is one interesting 
tidbit that I want to make sure people are aware of. In the Lincoln Project, you also have George Conway, who works with you, and Kellyanne Conway is in the White House. Some people may not understand how you you can work with him, and he he works there, and they're still married, and yada da da. If you, you can know, explain, I, here's how, one thing. Here's one thing I have to say. Yeah, here's something I have to say about that situation. I get asked about that a fair bit. You have to judge George on exactly what he has done in a public, forward-facing way. He has sacrificed everything in his professional side to be in this fight. He never pulls a punch on this guy. He never stops for a moment on this guy. And I'm not going to get into the terrain of people's individual marriages. But I judge George by the fact that he gives amazingly good counsel. I judge George by the fact that he's a tireless warrior against Donald Trump. And for me, that's enough. I'm not going to get into their marriage. It's just not my business. Folks who choose to do that can do that all day long. But there have been plenty of mixed marriages in politics before, and the sides have fought plenty hard against each other. And George is a, he is a tireless warrior in this thing. Right. It's a normal kind of thing. It's not weird because a lot of liberals will tell me, what about the Lincoln Project? I mean, they have Conway, so isn't that the White House? Da, 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 da. And that's just not how we oh, work. Oh, for fuck's sake. Right. Right. That's, a, that's, the, that's what exactly what I was going with. I don't want to talk about the marriage at all. But yeah, that's exactly the kind of corner that I get about it because I post every video you, you all have. Sometimes there'll be comments, I mean, but it's not, it's they're not real. To know who, right. It's important to know who Donald Trump is. Okay. And once you say a single word against Donald Trump, you're his enemy forever. Right, and, right. and I mean, George has been one of the most pointed and sharp critics of Donald Trump. And the thing that makes Trump crazier about it is Trump knows how right he is. George is like our, our mental anthropologist of Donald Trump. <laughs> and I'm sort of the political anthropologist. But he understands this guy's brain like nobody else. And the ticks and the weirdnesses and all the things that, that make Trump such a uniquely shitty character. Right. Now, and recently y'all released a one minute ad showing how much money Trump has paid to Brad Parscale, his longtime campaign manager. Mm-hmm. How much of that was targeted mm-hmm. at one man? And do you believe it was a successful ad? I mean, I loved it. Well, Brad Parscale was left in place, but fired. They sent in a guy named Bill Stepien, who is an old school Republican operative to go into the campaign to become Brad's supervisor. Now, he, his campaign title is deputy campaign manager. But Brad has been sidelined. Brad was making a gigantic amount of bank. He conned Donald Trump. He suckered Donald Trump and was able to go out and buy a $2.5 million house in Fort Lauderdale. He could have gotten by a half million dollar boat and a Ferrari and a $100,000 Land Rover. And he was living very, very large. We ran that ad in D.C. and Donald Trump saw it. And within three or four days, Brad's fate was sealed. He may still be you know, on the wiring diagram, the campaign manager, but adult supervision has been brought in and it has disrupted the campaign significantly because one of the things Brad does essentially is pay out the Trump girlfriends and wives with consulting fees and God knows what else runs through Brad's LLCs. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he also pays Laura and uh, the new girlfriend of Don Jr., a Kimberly Gilfoyle. Kimberly Gilfoyle. Yeah, so they, yeah. they're paid via, and it's like six figures. It's crazy how much money is flying around, and then they try and complain about Yovanovitch making money, quote-unquote, as a government representative. Right. Like, are you on salary right, right. now, or are you on leave? And it's like, well, my life's in danger, so I'm on leave. And it's like, well, what are you sitting on your butt? Um, anyways, we, we haven't talked about Morning in America yet, but I wanted to start by unpacking a more recent sure. spot called Flag of Treason. It's about the Republican Party's obsession with the Confederate going to play some of it now for our listeners. 
The men who followed this flag 150 years ago knew what it meant. Treason against their country. The death of the United States. America defeated the men who followed that flag. Those with honor surrendered and cast it aside forever. So why does it keep showing up today at events supporting Donald Trump? And why does he call the folks who carry it very fine people? I think there's blame on both sides. Uh, Why do you think that Republicans who always profess intense patriotism for the USA have latched on to the stars and bars? And why did one TV station in Raleigh, North Carolina, decide it was, quote unquote, too inflammatory to call the Confederacy bad? Well, the station in Raleigh obviously has made a choice. And Bob Iger from Disney owns the station. So, you know, we've got a lot of folks talking to their corporate uh, betters. And I think that they are complicit in this in that there is a part of Donald Trump's base that believes the Confederacy was a good thing. And they, and they show up at Trump rallies with these flags. They show up at Trump rallies to support him, praising a moment in our history where the southern states, to protect and preserve slavery forever, attempted to rebel against the United States. They attempted to destroy America. It is so symbolic to me not only because of its its racial overtones, but because of what Trump and Trumpism really represents. They want a symbolic schism of this country. They want a nationalist, populist government. And the not-so-subtle code word underneath it is they would like it to be a lot more pale than it is today. Mm-hmm. And then the Morning in America ad really landed. Facebook censored it and everyone who shared it, including us. Trump spent two days in a spasm lashing out over it. Uh, Considering that Trump shits all over everything Republicans have ever professed, why do you think it struck such a nerve with him to have Ronald Reagan's words thrown in his face? Well, I think that, you know, Morning in America is an iconic sort of sacred text among Republicans. And the reason Morning in America worked so powerfully was that At that moment in the country in 1984, after a prolonged recession, after a sense of economic and and international decline, there was a moment of optimism bubbling up in the country. And they saw it in the polling. And so they, they did an ad that didn't try to create a feeling or a mood, but rather to echo and reinforce it. And when I sat down and talked with the guys about what was going to be evocative of the moment we're in, and think about this. We were at 60,000 deaths when we made that ad. And we're now over 100,000. We were at 34 million unemployed when we made that ad. And we're now almost at 40. And this is even before George Floyd and the riot and the unrest and the police brutality. Those moments that we were able to capture in this spot were the same kind of mirror image of what had moved people so powerfully in 1984. And again, it's a sacred text. It is something that Republicans sort of know by heart. They get it in their gut. And the fact that we were able to come in so effectively and punch so hard on it uh, shocked a lot of people, how emotionally they reacted to it, how viscerally they reacted to it. And, of course, it sent Donald Trump into a multi-day panic spiral. I'd like to share something with you that I'm involved with right now. If you're looking for instructions on how to make a personal face mask or want to get involved sewing masks or distributing them, text MASKS, that's M-A-S-K-S, to 50409. 
That's masks, M-A-S-K-S, to 50409 to download a pattern or to get involved. Eventually, Facebook removed its uh, content strike from the Morning America ad. How did that go down? Did you guys have to take any action? And, and what kind of statement did it send to you about what's happening nowadays? Well, it tells you very clearly that Facebook is all in, completely all in on Donald Trump because they have allowed Donald Trump's campaign and Donald Trump to continue to put up ads that are false from top to bottom, ads that are lies that every word in the ad is a lie except for the articles A and and the. But in our case, it showed us that there's a White House hotline basically to Mark Zuckerberg where Donald Trump can complain that people are being mean to him and that Facebook will take an immediate action to censor and suppress that criticism of Trump. It's a lesson we we have taken to heart in terms of how they're going to operate in this campaign. And I think it's a lesson that Americans are starting to internalize as well, that there's no one on the Trump side that is going to not take advantage of their power with Facebook. Right. And getting to the 2020 campaign, I guess, on a broader scale, what's next for y'all on the ad front? Is it going to be releasing ads like once a week or how are you guys going to work things? Well, you know, we, we have a new ad out this week about the war zone in D.C. We have ads in the hopper right now. Let's put it this way. I've got four producers working right now creating new material, which is an awful lot. We're going to be putting out a lot more of this video material because it works in our moment. People are now getting their information digitally. We're able to fight in that digital battle space and and we're able to be very effective in in that digital battle space because, you know, we're sort of native to it. We're fast moving. We don't have a lot of the restraints of a party or a political campaign. Um, So we're able to do advocacy that frankly, on the technical side, not many people can pull off because we're fairly uniquely experienced in these matters. And on the ideological side, um, we understand how to speak to the voters that have to be won over in this campaign. And Democrats have often, and I've written about this in my books, they often make a category error in campaigning. And they think, well, the only thing that's going to win for us is that the most progressive side of the progressive base is fired up. Well, this is a country where the bases are roughly of equal size, and both sides are, are pretty much equally fired up all the time now. So it really does come down in the key electoral college swing states to a battle for people who are not woke. And this, this by the way, this applies on both sides. On the Republican side, they have to win over people who are not hard Trumpers. On the Democratic side, they have to win over people who are not Bernie bros, that are more centrist, that are more moderate. Because Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania are states that are comprised of an older voter cohort on the whole, which tends to, to vote and lean more conservative. They are comprised of a, a more Catholic voter cohort, which tends to lead in, in some meaningful areas more conservative. And they are, they are comprised of a more rural demographic cohort, which tends to lead much more conservative. So in these places, you know, we're trying to help the Democrats speak in the language of the target audience. And we think we've been pretty good at it so far. We think we're going to be able to make some very effective efforts on their behalf to help elect Joe Biden as president. Speaking of Joe Biden, what does he need to do in general to win, in your opinion? Well, he needs to scale up very quickly on the digital side. This is where that camp- this campaign is going to be fought and won. And so for a while now, from the bunker, um, that doesn't hurt him. He has to keep this race as a referendum on Donald Trump every day. This race is about Donald Trump's governance 
his leadership or lack thereof. This is about the, the things he has done and left undone. It is about whether this country can survive four more years of Donald Trump. All re-election campaigns are a referendum on the incumbent. In this case, between COVID and between the national unrest in this country and the economic collapse and the destruction that uh, Donald Trump has done to our institutions and our society, this is something that is an easy lift for Joe Biden. Keep on talking about being Joe Biden. Make a contrast to somebody who has empathy and heart and understanding and who is going to be somebody who governs for the country and not for himself. And, and I think he's got a very fine shot at this. And I hope they keep their eye on the ball in terms of the fact that, and I, I know a lot of my progressive friends get disappointed by this, policy doesn't matter. Policy in campaigns never matters. I've done hundreds of races from dog catcher to president. Policy does not matter. Elizabeth Warren, she put out a 650-page briefing book. No one ever casts a vote for policy. It's a competition between two individuals. It is a competition between how they're going to broadly govern and how they're going to broadly lead. Joe needs to stay out of the weeds. He does not need a 7,000-page climate change plan. That's an important issue. He can address it later when he's elected. But those things are not where the campaign will be won. Remember, Donald Trump's campaign theme fit on a trucker hat. And people go, oh, well, that's just Trump. Blah, blah, blah. Barack Obama's campaign theme fit on a poster. Hope, change. These things are, are, are the big picture of campaigns. And Biden needs to keep that in mind going forward, that we are not in a race that is about policy. It is about heart. It is about being. It is about the, the quality of, of, of the, the individuals at stake. And Biden is a much more high-quality individual than Donald Trump. He is not a criminal. He is not a scumbag. He is not an abuser. He is not, he is not a damn degenerate. He is all the things that Donald Trump is not. And it's important for him to, to run on that basis. How do you think this all ends for Donald? Humiliating death in prison, the destruction of every single thing that's ever had his name on it, the death of the Trump brand, the humiliation of the Trump children for generations to come, the salting of the earth at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, he's going to be a guy who goes down in infamy in this country as not only the worst president we've ever had, but as an aberration that should be a generational warning to other countries as well. Is there anything not that... Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> is, there, is there anything that you think maybe we should be expecting from him during the campaign season between now and November that, uh, like, is he going to accelerate this violence? Is he going to... Hideous, there... hideous, you, yes. You should expect a gigantic tidal wave of foreign-assisted propaganda. You should expect ludicrous conspiracy theories. You should expect the entire force of the federal government to be turned to suppressing and depressing the possibility of voter turnout. You should watch for a variety of imaginary threats. You know, don't think you're past the uh, Antifa Soros super soldier MS-13 ISIS caravan coming up from the border when Donald Trump panicked at the end of the campaign. They're going to make up the most ludicrous shit you can possibly imagine. They're going to go completely crazy, and they're going to have Fox and their allies to amplify it very powerfully. So it's important to be ready for that and to gird your loins for a season of insanity and I just finished writing the chapters to my paperback version of Running Against the Devil, 
because obviously we rushed it into production because everything has changed with COVID and now this. And so we're in a hot war with Trump and I've described a lot of how to, how to look at it, but the chaos and the division are the only tools he has left in the toolbox. And you can expect him to use them to maximum effect. Anything to leave us with that's positive? You know, one thing about America is we are a resilient nation. We have been through bad things before. This is a uniquely bad thing because in some ways it's, it's sort of a flaw in our operating system that we've discovered. But we are a resilient country made up of millions of, and millions of people who, while they are shallow and angry and selfish in a million ways, they also are amazingly tough. They are also amazingly giving. They also give a damn about their friends, their families, their neighbors, and they do the right thing. We may be dragged kicking and screaming to doing the right thing in this case, but we will get there as a country. The project is the Lincoln Project. You can visit them at lincolnproject.us. Rick Wilson, the legend, the man in the myth. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time. I know long well, I time coming. I, it was one of my first guests that I wanted to ask on ever. And then, you know, we got busy the last few years. So, uh, but I appreciate it. I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you for everything you've done. And I look forward, I look forward to going back to us being Democrats and Republicans going against each other on more tangible Uh, stuff. Marginal tax rates. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. Take care. I'd like to thank Rick Wilson for taking the time on the show. I'd like to thank our producer, Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. You can visit our website at dorkinreport.com. You can visit the nonprofit Masks Now at masksnow.org. See how you can help out. Keep resisting. We're almost there. <laughs>